Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, so today I thought I would do kind of a bunch of different diseases and kind of talk about how similar they are because they're really difficult to determine um, which which disease the patient really actually has. So uh, my question was, what do ticks, coonhounds, and macadamia nuts all have in common? So let's have this dog that comes in. Uh, presents for just kind of walking weirdly or not being able to use their back legs. It's very sudden and had started in the pelvic limbs or hind limbs and then just kind of spread forward to the to their forelimbs. Um, maybe they're having some little bit of difficulty breathing and sometimes they'll end up even have like facial weakness or changes of their voice or problems swallowing or chewing like the owner might think that the dog's jaws kind of hanging down or that they attempt to to chew but just can't swallow their food or even you'll have vomiting or coughing or regurgitation that goes along with this so we always think about down dogs as being like back dogs but not usually a lot of the times when it goes from the from the hind limbs to the forelimbs uh, sometimes those will be neck dogs, but a lot of times that means that they had paralysis in their hind limbs and their forelimbs at the same time. Not that it starts in the hind limb and then goes to the forelimbs. So when we're talking about history of these things, you know that's one really important thing to distinguish with the owner. If they say that it's not using its legs at all, asking first, like, was it just that it wasn't using its its hind limbs first and then spread to its forelimbs or just wasn't using any of its legs at all at the same time. And that can even be hard to it sometimes because maybe the owner just didn't see that the dog wasn't using their back legs at first. Maybe they just came home from work and just saw that they weren't using either their hind limbs or their forelimbs. And so they might have seen the very first thing being that it seemed like all forelimbs were not able to be used. So what are some of the differentials for this? So tick paralysis is one. Uh, second one is called polyridiculoneuritis. It sounds polyridiculous, right? And botulism, myasthenia gravis, macadamia nuts, uh, ionophore toxicities, some organophosphate insecticides, the dumb form of rabies, and luckily we don't have this here, but I do have to put it in here, coral snake bites. Uh, coral snakes are usually not very common in this side of the United States. It's usually over on the East Coast, luckily. But we're going to talk about a couple of these that we could see just kind of over in our area. So we're going to talk about tick paralysis first. Uh, we actually had a dog that had come in that we didn't realize that it had, had tick paralysis. It was a husky that came in. And it came in and he was just having difficulty using his back legs and it never really progressed necessarily to the forelimbs. It just kind of was in the back legs. He did seem like he was painful. We couldn't figure out why. And it, we had even sent him to a neurologist. And it wasn't until the owner got him back that they were able to find the ticks on the dog and figure out what the actual cause was. The dog was in the hospital for a couple of days uh, and did improve without us finding those ticks. But, so what happens with this? So 
it what happens is these ticks, it's usually the um, females who are pregnant. So we call them gravid females. So gravid ticks that cause this neurotoxin. And just to be clear, not every tick is going to cause a neurotoxin and not every gravid tick is going to cause a neurotoxin. Um, but the most common ones that will, most common ticks that will cause a problem are going to be in the U.S. Luckily, we only have a couple as compared to the, um, Australia has a lot of crazy, terrible ones. But in the U.S., we have two main types. Their families are called Dermacenter and Exodes. And the, the common names are going to be the Rocky Mountain Dog Tick, the American Dog Tick, the Lone Star Tick, which if you haven't seen one, you should look it up. There's the Gulf Coast Tick, the Black-Legged Tick, and the Western Black-Legged Tick. So what, what happens? So the tick goes and it attaches to the dog. And it usually takes five to nine days after the tick is attached. So this isn't like a lot of these dogs that come in and they're like, they just gone hiking and the owners found a tick and we've removed it. Um, usually this is going to be that the tick has been on the dog for for days. And when you have really hairy dogs like that husky I was talking about, it's almost impossible to see them sometimes. A lot of these times these ticks will um, hide out in places that you don't necessarily would normally look or normally feeling on your dog. So it'll be like inside the ears, it'll be between the toes, under the collar, um, in the inguinal area, like in weird areas. So when we talk about doing a tick check, like we need to look at all of those places as well. The other weird thing is you can have what's called tick craters. It's actually basically where the tick was and then it then it died or its head broke off inside the dog and it created this bump, this little red bump with like a hole or a crater inside. So we call it a tick crater. Uh, but that head can cause a problem still. So the mechanism, we do kind of know what the mechanism is a little bit. So we know that the toxin from the female gravid tick, um, it does what's called depolarizes the acetylcholine release receptor. All right. So when we think about how you move, you have your nerves and you have them going to a muscle. So your nerve has to send a signal somehow to your muscle to say to move, right? That signal is called acetylcholine. And there's a mechanism on the nerve that releases it. And then there's a mechanism on the receptor of the muscle that tells your muscle then to move. And then there's also a piece in between there. So there's this acetylcholinesterase, in, which is an enzyme. So it's like this little enzyme in the middle that breaks down acetylcholine. So if you were to picture this as like a, a baseball game, right? So you have your pitcher is going to be your nerve. It's going to throw the ball, which will be your acetylcholine. And there is the catcher who's on the other side to catch the ball, right? That's going to be your muscle. And actually the batter in between there is going to try to stop acetylcholine from getting to the catcher. And if they're able to make a bat, obviously the acetylcholine goes away. Right? That's kind of the best way I can kind of describe like how this interaction works. But so we know that this, this 
neurotoxin goes and tells the pitcher or the nerve to not release it. So it's not releasing the ball or not releasing the acetylcholine. So that, so that acetylcholine can never get to the other side to the muscles to tell them to move. And like I said, this usually starts with like, it'll go from the back end cranially. So towards the head is what cranially means to the forelimbs. It can also act on other things. So it usually can, and also act on like the pharynx and the larynx of so muscles in your neck or in the throat, in the esophagus, so your food pipe, in your trachea or your windpipe, and then can also cause mega esophagus, which means that the esophagus just becomes really, or the food pipe again, becomes really enlarged. And that's usually because food will just sit inside the esophagus and then makes it really irritated and uh, makes it become just much bigger than it normally should be. That that part is a little bit tricky because that can look like a lot of, just, or some of our other diagnoses as well. So how do we diagnose a tick or a tick paralysis? Well, it's pretty simply down to find the tick. So like when we're asking for tick checks, like we want you to look in all of those areas and look for things like tick craters, because that's going to tell us if we find those, then we know that it's going to be a tick paralysis. The treatment, super cool. Just remove the ticks. So as soon as they remove the ticks, um, within a couple of hours to a couple of days, those symptoms will have improved or be gone. And uh, you should be happy we don't live in Australia because in Australia, like I said, those ticks are crazy. Some of those those tick paralysis, they have to have a tick antiserum in order to be given in order for them to live. Like they can get really bad to the point where they can't breathe even. So the majority of these dogs do just fine. Like I said, you remove the tick, usually not a problem. If you don't find the tick and we just let the tick kind of keep feeding, um, there is a chance that the dog could die. And it's about a 5% chance that, that that could happen. Some of these dogs, like some of the things that we have to think about just when they're in the hospital is going to be just doing a lot of supportive care for them. So it means giving them oxygen if they're having trouble breathing, putting them on fluids if they're not able to drink, and then putting in like a urinary catheter. So like this is something that, you know, like Hannah can be thinking to, to, to talk to us about like, hey, this dog is just peeing a lot um, and it can't move. Could we put in a urinary catheter? Because it's not something I always think about sometimes. Uh, lubing the eyes, so that's a really big deal. You want to make sure you lube the eyes because some of these dogs can't blink and we don't want them to get an ulcer. And then also for the ones that can't swallow or are having difficulty swallow, all of that drool and saliva is just building up in there. So that does mean like suctioning out their mouth so that, that way we can try to get as much drool out as possible. And then also decreasing stress. The more stressed out this dog is, uh, the less it's going to be able to move around. So we just have to kind of wait for that neurotoxin to come out of the body by removing that tick and just wait for that body to be able to start producing more acetylcholine so that way they can move their muscles again. And really like the only ways to prevent tick paralysis is going to be using like tick prevention. Uh, so I had to look this up because I don't know all the tick prevention off the top of my head. And the ones that 
are on the market or in the veterinary market are Provecto, Credelio, Nexgard, and Semperica. Um, all of those should do ticks. So for some of these dogs that we don't know if they had gotten into gotten ticks or not, it's reasonable just to put the tick prevention on them if we can't find it. It's like that husky putting tick prevention on or giving it a like a Provecto so we can try to help kill the ticks if they are there. But also then just checking the dogs all the time to be able to feel for any like ticks just on your own dogs. And it doesn't have to be just after hiking. Remember, ticks are on wildlife, and that means all wildlife. So there are deer ticks, yes, but they also can be on other things too, like possums. You can have ticks on birds. You can have ticks on um, uh, bunnies. Lots of wildlife that comes in through your yard as well. So we do want to try to make sure that you know, we're checking all the time for those ticks. All right, the next one we're going to do is called polyradicular neuritis. And the simpler term for that is called coonhound paralysis. This is something that's like pretty much seen in dogs. And it's not because necessarily it's only found in coonhounds. Um, they actually started to call it that because coonhounds just happened to get it a lot because they were, uh, they interacted a lot with raccoons. So, that's why they call them the coonhound paralysis. It's pretty rare in cats, but it's suspected to be an autoimmune disorder, sort of immune-mediated reaction, meaning that the own body is going to be reacting to itself. And like I said, this happened most commonly because of them because of them attacking raccoons. It's actually the raccoon saliva that they believe can cause this autoimmune disorder. But other things can cause it too. So like vaccines can cause it, and even bacteria can cause it. So uh, one of the things that they found was in raw chicken that was contaminated by a bacteria called Campylobacter that has also caused coonhound paralysis as well. And most of the time, it's going to look exactly like our other one. It's going to start in the back legs and then move forward to the front legs. But they have found a couple of these that have started in the forelimbs and then moved its way back as well. But this also can cause things like facial paralysis and... The larynx can be weakened, so we'll have that change in voice again. So you can see this. We already have a lot of things that just already looked like tick paralysis, right? But the interesting thing with coonhound paralysis is it usually is it can be kind of fast when when it first starts out. Like in one to two days, usually you'll have this. We call it flaccid paralysis, is when we were paralyzed and and aren't able to move, and then. Eventually, though, it will progress for like about 10 to 14 days to make the dog become just muscle wasted. And unfortunately, like the only way to diagnose this is by something called electromyography, um, which is basically where they like hook up these machines to the muscles and the nerves to try to figure out like how they're firing and if they're firing correctly. Or the other thing that they used to do was a nerve biopsy as well. Super painful though. There's no treatment for this. Uh, it's just that it will spontaneously improve. Like in three weeks, they just recover. And sometimes you can take up to two to six months for a complete recovery, but you start to see them like moving around again, being able to move their muscle again uh, versus like that tick paralysis usually doesn't last that long. Like if we got to... 14 days, then it would be 
Um, I don't know that that dog would have made it. But yeah, so like I said, Coonham paralysis looks a lot like that first one. All right, our third one we're going to talk about is going to be Myasthenia gravis. Uh, This one is dedicated to Erica Burns because she always calls it the Mega Grabby Syndrome. But Myasthenia gravis is a interesting disease. So it's most commonly found in German Shepherds, Goldens, Labs, Newfies, Great Danes, Akitas, and Scotties. Pretty uncommon in cats. And in this one... Uh, we were talking about that acetylcholine before, like how the acetylcholine moves around, right? This one is that there's not enough acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction because, which is where the nerve meets the muscle. So there's not enough acetylcholine getting to the muscle because there's antibodies in the body that are destroying the acetylcholine receptor. So if you think about the other teams coming and and destroying or beating up on the catcher in our baseball game. That's kind of what is happening here. They're trying to make it so that the catcher cannot catch the ball and the acetylcholine is being produced, whereas in that first case with the ticks, it wasn't being produced. Now it's being produced, but it just can't get to where it needs to go. It can't get to that pitcher's glove because it's that pitcher is being like beaten up at the moment. So there are multiple forms of this. The most common one is going to be what's called generalized. And it means that all the skeletal muscle is involved, which is like our anything that we can use to move. Um, skeletal muscle is also found in other places too, like it can be found in the esophagus and in the trachea. But this one is super interesting. So the very first time I diagnosed this one, it was on a golden and the most common thing you'll see is that the dog will have these tremors or they will have this paralysis in its, in its back legs that moves to its front legs after some sort of exercise or some sort of stress. So the most common one, I, the first one I saw was that golden that walked into the clinic while I was doing, I remember very clearly, I was doing a laceration repair and I saw the dog walk in. And it was doing just fine. And then just very suddenly started to not be able to use its back legs. And he started coughing. So that's usually actually the very first presentations of it is people will notice that the dog had a cough or it's been regurgitating. And that also it's it'll be fine after it's rested. And then we'll go back to being able to not use its their their legs again. And that's just because of the fact that when the dog is rested, we have a more acetylcholine that can get to the receptors because not all the receptors are, are being destroyed. So not all of the catchers in the game are going to be destroyed, but you know there's going to be a, a good majority of them. So those acetylcholine can get over to some of the catchers. The other most prominent thing about this generalized one is they usually have mega esophagus and we've already talked about that in the tick paralysis right mega esophagus is going to be that the esophagus is or the food pipe is going to be enlarged and that's usually because of the fact that we have this food that just sits in there this one though can also be because of those um, antibodies that are destroying the acetylcholine receptor they can those antibodies can go over to the esophagus as well and cause enlargement 
The other and most common type that we'll see is called a focal myasthenia gravis. And it usually is just in the face or the pharynx, so in the, the throat area, and the esophagus. But they won't have a generalized weakness, so they won't have that paralysis of all their legs like they did before in that generalized form. So that one's a, kind of a hard one to diagnose because it might look like something completely different than myasthenia gravis. And then the really bad one is called fulminant myasthenia gravis. And that's where they have a very rapid just paralysis in all their legs. They'll have the megasophagus, but then it also starts going into having respiratory difficulty because skeletal muscle is also in things like our diaphragm. And our diaphragm is needed to be able to breathe. So if it gets to the diaphragm and causes paralysis, they can't breathe. And then they'll die very quickly. Um, so that's the really bad form of it. Not as common, but pretty bad. And then the fourth type of it is called perineoplastic. And it's basically where there's this tumor that's in the chest. It's called the thymus or the thymic tumor. The thymus was this little uh, thing that was producing white blood cells when the dog was a puppy. And then it just kind of goes away when they get older and becomes fat. But we'll ask you a lot of times to take x-rays of the chest for two reasons. One, we're looking for that mega esophagus. And two, we're looking for that thymic tumor to be able to see if there really is a, a tumor that's there or not. And when you're doing these x-rays, uh, the biggest thing to remember is just to pull the front legs forward when you're doing the chest x-rays because if the legs are sitting back on the dog like closer to the heart we're not going to be able to see that tumor if it's there and then how do we diagnose this uh, this one's a little bit easier at least it has a test it just takes a longer time so you can send out an antibody it's called the achr test um, or acetylcholine receptor test so it's looking for those antibodies in the serum that are destroying the acetylcholine receptors. The other way is in some of the neurologists, you'll see that they have an injection. That's just a common name for it, but it's not something that's being made anymore. So it's really hard to be able to get a hold of. It's not something we've ever carried because it's expensive. We don't see um, myasthenia gravis all that often. I've probably only diagnosed it four times since being a vet. And so using this injection, what you do is you give it the injection and then you'll go, you'll see the dog go from like not being able to walk at all to just immediately stand up and being able to walk. And so if they do that, then you know that this is myasthenia gravis. How do we treat this? So this one, we need something called anticholinesterase medications. That's a big word, right? So anti-against uh, cholinesterase. So we're talking about acetylcholinesterase, which is an enzyme that's going to be like your batter that's batting away the acetylcholine. So that enzyme, we're trying to break down that enzyme so that it will be able to get more acetylcholine to the receptors. They'll stay in the receptors for longer. So they'll stay, that baseball will stay in the pitcher's glow for longer and be less likely to cause a problem. We will actually be able to move and move their legs around. 
The medications that we use are called pyridostigmine or neostigmine. Those are the anticholinesterase medications. Other medications we're going to use are like immunosuppressive steroids, so prednisone, prednisolone. We're using them at really high doses so that we can stop the body from making these antibodies against its own receptors. We're trying to tell it to stop hurting itself. And then other things at home and also in the clinic is anytime you see a dog who has mitocinin gravis, you want to make sure they're fed upright. So there's a chair called a Bailey's chair that they'll put them in. And it's kind of like, if you think about like a, um, a baby's high chair, they'll kind of like sit in it so that they're standing and they're eating on this like high chair so that they're always upright for at least about 10 to 15 minutes after they've eaten. So any of the dogs that are in the clinic that have myasthenia gravis, you want to have them standing for that 10 minutes while they're eating and after they're eating. That's because the food cannot go down the esophagus properly. And so we're trying to help them do that by having them stand and making gravity work for us. Because think about a dog who's like on all fours. It's very parallel to the ground. And so we want to put them upright to try to help gravity move all of that stuff down into their stomach. So whether if it's a big dog, that means putting them up on a counter and having them eat on a, on a counter and then just holding them there for 10, 15 minutes versus little dogs, like if this is a little terrier or something, having them eat to where they're on a box and then holding them up afterwards, that would be fine as well. The hardest part about these guys is that they will get secondary problems. Um, so about 50% of them are usually going to either be euthanized or die from getting aspiration pneumonia. And that's because they have that mega esophagus. So all their food is just kind of sitting in the esophagus and then they regurgitate it or vomit it back up and then inhale it right away. And when they inhale it, that food and the bacteria and those particles all go into the chest and cause aspiration pneumonia. Now, when you already have an immunocompromised dog, we have them on steroids, which is not great for infections. Um, steroids will make it so that your body doesn't fight off those things very well. So if your body can't fight off the infection really well, it makes it harder to be able to get that dog to recover from its aspiration pneumonia. So unfortunately, some of these will die or they'll be euthanized from that. But of the ones that don't have mega esophagus, um, about 85% of them are just going to spontaneously go into remission by themselves. It's just going to, we'll put them on the medications and then suddenly they're going to be just fine. Um, just a quick note, I talked about cats a little bit in some of the other ones. With this one is really interesting because cats will not go into remission. And this can be a common side effect to methamazole which is the medication we give for cats who have hyperthyroidism. It's not a common side effect, but it's it's a side effect that can occur. And as soon as you get them off of the medication, off of the methamazole, suddenly the cat is normal again. So if you see a cat that's not moving, ask them if they have the cat on methamazole because that might be a reaction to that. All right, next we're going to talk about botulism. So botulism is caused by a bacteria. 
but we don't call it a bacterial infection. Like I can't give the dog antibiotics to make this go away. It's actually a toxin made by botulism or botulinum. So the toxin is called the botulinum toxin, which is caused by the bacteria Clostridium botulinum. This can be found in a lot of different places, and this is something that can affect humans and animals as well. So the most common places they're going to be exposed are going to be like eating dead animals. So one of the the papers that was written about this is what by by my old professor. Uh, it was a bunch of cows that got botulism because they were eating this grain that was that a cat had gone into and just died. And usually this means that it's going to be from like a cat, like like dying animals. They're going to be in some sort of container. Like it's usually not just kind of out in the open. So like that feed one, it was the container was a closed container. And so that botulism toxin loves all that like dead decaying stuff. It doesn't like air very much. Uh, It's pretty robust. So it can actually go through heat like you could heat it up and it's usually not going to kill it very well but it doesn't like acidic things so like lots of acidic foods you're probably not going to find the botulism toxin in but other places that you might see it are going to be like spoiled vegetation it does really like vegetables because again those are not acidic and then any of those bulging cans so if you go to get a dog food and you see that can is bulging it probably has botulism in it, so do not feed that to your dog. Do not eat it yourself either. The one case that I had that I was pretty sure that I had botulism, and this this botulism also, by the way, is dedicated to Sarah Cross because she'll always look at a dog who has seems like they are paralyzed or something and say, that's botulism. So I thought this was a good one for her. But... Um, it can also be like from that little dog that I had seen that I thought actually did have botulism. It did not have botulism, but it was pretty suspicious for it. it was a little schnauzer, miniature schnauzer, and the owner was canning apples. And he thought that maybe um, the apples weren't very good, like the canning process didn't work. And so that he could have given and then he gave the dog the apples afterwards and definitely could have gotten botulism and this was a puppy so they're even more likely to get botulism because of that one of the um other things are going to be like spoiled meat as well so interestingly botulism in latin actually means uh, sausage so they they originally thought that this was due to the consumption of sausage that sausage was causing all of this botulism but it can be like in anything, like it can be, you normally will have a little bit of it, like trace amounts of it just in healthy fish and birds and mammals in general, but also in babies. So like you don't want to give babies honey, raw unfiltered honey, because that'll have a little bit of botulism in as well. And that can cause botulism in babies, like human babies. And then another interesting thing about it is that this one Instead of all of those, it kind of is like more similar to the tick paralysis because this is stopping acetylcholine from being released. So the pitcher cannot pitch the acetylcholine. It cannot pitch the baseball. 
because it stops it from being released at all. The other common place that you are going to find this is also in wild water birds, but in ducks that just happens to be found a lot. And then very similar to some of the other ones, like this is a very quick onset. It's usually can be anywhere between like 12 hours to up to six days after the ingestion, just depending on like how much they were exposed to as to how quickly this is going to progress. One of the other places you might find this too is like, let's say if you have like a history of having bite wounds in there, because the botulism loves dying tissue, dying flesh. And some of these wounds are being covered up by all of that hair and matted debris on there. Um, it can actually go into those wounds as well. So usually if we are worried about botulism or we're worried about these dogs who look like they have a very flaccid paralysis, you know, one of the things to ask them is like, were there any wounds on this dog? Is there any way that they could get into any dead animals? Is there any way they could get into, um, like a lot of people will compost other vegetation and the compost just sits there and so the dog can just walk over and start eating it? Or, you know, did they give it any any cans that were suspicious, any cans of dog food that were suspicious that looked like they were bulging? Or in my case, randomly, did you give your dog canned apples that could potentially have had botulism in them? You just never know. Treatment for this is not great. Um, even just to get a diagnosis on it is very difficult. It takes about three weeks for this to come back. And by three weeks, this dog is either going to be alive or dead. But as soon as, as soon as you know that it could have potentially gotten into botulism, um, you can give an antitoxin, but it is very difficult to find. It's almost impossible to find it in humans. In animal medicine, so a lot of times it's going to be going to the school to be able to find it. It's I, I'm not sure that any specialist around here even has it because it's it's just not something that is very common. And the other problem with that antitoxin is going to be it's made for horses, not for dogs, so it's off label for us to use. And the third problem is if that dog has already progressed to having signs of paralysis this antitoxin is not going to work. So you have to catch it before it even has symptoms, which is almost impossible, right? Like who's going to bring in their dog? And it's like, my dog ate a piece of celery and I think that it has botulism on it. And so we need to give it the antitoxin. Like that just doesn't happen, right? If the dog does make it, it does usually recover in about three weeks. It's not, not too bad. I mean, the biggest problem with these guys is just trying to get them to that recovery because, again, it, this can it can affect the all the skeletal muscles, so their legs will be affected. They can also have problems swallowing. Uh, they might have their diaphragm that's affected. And if that's the case, like some of these dogs end up having to go onto a ventilator. They have a feeding tube put in. They're on oxygen. I mean, it's pretty extensive if they're going to live. Luckily, they said that little... Miniature Schnauzer, he did not have botulism, but it was pretty suspicious because the other crazy thing is that clindamycin actually makes it worse. And that dog had been given clindamycin that day and it got a lot worse that day. So another interesting fact. And then the last one that I'm going to go into is going to be macadamia nuts. We don't know why this happens, so nobody has any idea what the mechanism of action is, like why this occurs. 
The best way we know if it is macadamia nuts is either that the owner has told us that the dog had eaten macadamia nuts, or when we go to do a rectal, we start finding pieces of macadamia nuts in the rectal. I mean, that's unfortunately the only way. There's no test that we can do to see if they have macadamia nuts. And then clinical signs usually will develop in about 12 hours. All those same signs, you know, the dog can't walk, sometimes can have breathing difficulty, um, swallowing difficulty, all those same signs can potentially occur. And then they last for about 48 hours. There was actually a study that was done that they gave dogs a whole bunch of of macadamia nuts and there is like a weight like how much you can feed them and it's like 1.2 grams per kg if i remember correctly but they gave a whole bunch of dogs macadamia nuts they took looked to see how long it took to for those signs to develop which was about 12 hours and then they found that if they didn't treat them at all it lasted for 48 hours and they were just miraculously just fine after that didn't have to do anything Super crazy. Other ones that we had talked about, like rabies is another interesting one, but that's a lot to go into for this one. And most of the time, it's this is not the most common clinical signs you're going to see. Uh, this this type of rabies is called dumb rabies, like because they just seem like they're dumb. They can't move around. They kind of flop around. So the best way to kind of know if this is rabies or not is just to ask for the immunization records, like has the dog been vaccinated for rabies before, and also has it been exposed to anything that could have rabies. So did it get exposed to a bat that might have rabies? Were you in California and it could have been exposed to a skunk or a fox or something that had rabies? So those are the kind of things that you're looking for there. Because otherwise, the only way to determine if the dog has rabies or not is to send it out for rabies testing. Uh, which is not something we really want to do. Uh, the dog cannot be alive for that. And then, like I said, the other weird things, you have um, some other toxicities, ionophore and organophosphate toxicities. I'm going to go into those at some other later time. And then that coral snake bite. So be thankful we don't have coral snakes around here. All right. I know that was um, a lot to go into at one time, but I feel like they all just have such very similar clinical signs. And so when we ask for like doing things, you know, like checking the dog for ticks and doing these x-rays, um, I just kind of want you guys to know why we ask that because these all look similar. It's very difficult to be able to diagnose them. And the tests that we can do to diagnose them sometimes weeks, takes weeks to diagnose them. So getting a thorough history, doing those things are going to really help us. All right. I know that was kind of a lot. I was going to tell you a funny story real quick. So my son, uh, he was actually, let me back up. Our, we just got new neighbors and there is a little kid who's like Abigail's age, like around seven-ish. And he was jumped, had jumped the fence and was kind of just staring at Oren and I while we were cleaning out the ducks. So I thought that he really wanted to play with Oren. And I was like, Oren, go, you know, go play with him. Like he obviously is trying to get your attention. And Oren's like, I don't want to play with him. Like if he wants to come play with me, he can come over and talk to me. And I was like, Oren, he's seven years old. Like he's, he's going to be shy. He's not going to want to come over and ask you. And especially if I'm here, like an adult's here, he's not going to want to ask the, around the adult. So I said, I'm going to go inside and make dinner. You know, you 
just go over and talk to him, be his friend, like you've wanted to have kids here in the neighborhood, and we finally have kids, so go go talk to him. And the kid just kept kept staring at this box that was by our door and so I or by our gate, so I just kind of assumed that it was a package because I always get packages right there. And he would just kind of stare at Orin and he would stare at the the box and so I finally went inside. And I had to go back outside to go throw the trash out and Oren comes running up to me and he's like, Dad, the kid did not want to play with me. And I was like, oh, I'm real sorry, buddy. Like, I really thought that he wanted to play with you. Like, he just kept staring at you. So I, I guess I just misread that. I'm really sorry. He's like, well, the reason why he was staring at you or at me was because their dog had hurt a squirrel and they want to know if you can see it and if you have to pay money. And I was like, it's like I can't treat wildlife, buddy. So we gotta like see how bad this is. Like, if this is just a head trauma or something, like I can, we can just like you know warm it up for the night and then set it back out in the morning. He said, "Well, I told him that you probably wouldn't see it because you're off today." <laughs> it's like, yes, good job, Oren. You let people know that I'm not working on my days off. That was very nice. The squirrel did not do well, and it did not make it. So I ended up having to euthanize it. It was too far gone. But anyways, that's what I get for telling Oren that he should go and talk to these people, or talk to a new friend. My bad. All right, guys. Thanks again for listening. Uh, Thank you again for all of your um, suggestions as well. And I'm trying to get through the list of them. I know I had quite a lot of suggestions, so I hope everybody is enjoying them. And if you have more suggestions, like I said, please email me, text me, write me a note, whatever it is. Um, I'm happy to go over uh, anything you guys want to learn about. Thanks, guys. Have a good day.